This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... I would like to pay tribute once again to the brave, defiant men and women still protesting in Iran. So to the women on those streets, we hear you. The world sees you. We are with you. As the EU imposes new sanctions on some Iranian officials, we'll examine the situation on the ground. Then to Ukraine to find out more about the many foreign soldiers fighting for the country. Plus... On the matter of Russia and Ukraine, there is no one in South Africa who supports war. This is the position of South Africa. We support a search for peace. The South African Minister of International Relations there, but Pretoria is hosting both Sergei Lavrov and Russian warships. So how much weight can we give her statement? We'll sit down with the mayor of Orlando, Florida, rustle through the papers, hear from Dana Thomas in Paris, and catch up with the director of the Oslo Design Fair. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. The European Union has imposed new sanctions on dozens of Iranian officials, whom they believe have a role in the current repressive clampdown on protesters in the country. However, despite calls from the EU Parliament, Iran's Revolutionary Guard has not been listed as a terrorist organisation, despite the bloc blaming it for the repression of domestic protesters and the supply of drones to Russia's military for use in Ukraine. Well, here to unpack this is Negan Shiraki, who is an Iranian activist and former presenter at the BBC's Persian service. Negan, many thanks for joining us. How many individuals have been sanctioned and and what sort of people are they? So uh, the numbers, um, it's I think it's 15 for European Union. We also had um, US last night putting more people on, on the sanctions list. From IRGC. Um, the is interesting thing um, this time is, you know, alongside these individuals who's been um, in charge of oppression inside the country and the brutal crackdown that has been happening in the last, uh, since September, um, it's putting some of the organizations that are close to the Iranian um, 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 part of IRGC system uh, on that sanction list, which makes it much more difficult for IRGC to operate uh, and funnel its financial uh, support system inside and outside the country. And that's a quite interesting thing because you see more and more pressure on IRGC from the EU. You see more people, individuals who matter for IRGC, both on the, on, on the front of they being the face of the crackdown, as well as being high-ranking uh, people on IRGC on the sanction list, um, but still they're hesitant towards um, putting it as an organization or as an um, armed force of a country on terrorist group list. So that kind of going parallel hand in hand with what people, um, spe- specifically the, the Iranian diaspora and the people on the ground protesting are demanding, but they're not still getting but the, the aim goal was, uh, you know, the end goal was for them, which was putting the IRGC on the terrorist list. And what's the official reason for not sanctioning the IRGC as an organisation? Um, the official reason is their Borrell, what Borrell said, which was it, it needs to come from um, a, a investigation, a kind of a trial or some sort of investigation should open, and then based on that, EU can do that, which. Which is true, but at the same time, it that investigation doesn't need to be happening inside the EU. So it can come from a third party, it can come from US, which already did that. Um, so there are grounds to argue that, you know, that investigation has opened up already, so EU doesn't need to wait. But there are other reasons around it. You know, you can look at the signals Iran is sending at the moment um, to to go back on nuclear deal negotiation. And there are parts of the EU that want that to happen. Um, And there is that, you know, um, also on the other part of it, um, there are relations between Iran and, and, you know, and some European countries that those European countries don't want to 
muddy the water right now, especially, mm. especially because Iran has some dual nationals in its prison and trying to put pressure and getting a leverage against some European countries. So it's, it's a really complicated and muddy water. And, and, and it's interesting to see where it goes. I think it shows if this happens, it shows how much Europe wants to send a, a strong signal to Iran. But at the same time, it shows they're giving up on negotiation if this actually happens. And, and, and this is why the Iranian diaspora and the people are pushing for it. And I suppose there's also the danger of reciprocal measures. I mean, what would it mean, for instance, to the British Navy operating in the Persian Gulf if the, IR, if the IRGC is a, a terrorist organisation, that they could be designated as such too? Um, it's it's interesting. There are rumours or there are demands from inside Iran, from some parts of the government or politicians saying we're going to close down the Strait of Hormuz, we're going to put pressure on, um, you know, all of the, 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 the shipments and whatever is passing through that, um, which can be a massive uh, burden on, on the trade in that region. It can it can put pressure on, on the international presence there, as well as the, you mentioned the UK presence in um, Bahrain. But it doesn't necessarily, um, it's possible for Iranians to do that. They don't have the f- enough forces to do it, but the threat is there. And even that threat can change um, the dynamic, can change the, you know, the, the price of oil and, you know, the goods that are um, um, passed through that uh, a small piece of um water in that um, strategic region. So, it, yeah, there are things they can do, but I'm not sure how effective they would be in reality. I wonder how far the IRGC controls the Iranian economy. I mean, I understand that the group uh, welcomes <laughs> Iran's international isolation because it benefits financially, controlling the, the smuggling economy in Iran that, that has emerged in the wake of those sanctions. Yeah, it's so basically I've been doing a lot of research on, on to understand how extensive is that grasp on the Iran economy. And there's no actual numbers, it's not official numbers, but the estimate is more than 50% of the economy directly. And there are other parts of the economy that they're operating um, indirectly, as well as the, the smuggling network. What happened is after the Iran Iraq war, um, they the Iranian and uh, the Islamic Republic decided that they need to put IRGC in to work because um, they created this parallel army forces, armed forces alongside the, uh, um, Iran's army, and they needed to give them something to continue, you know, continue their operations in another way. And that meant a lot of the parts of this government became uh, former members of IRGC or active members of IRGC and they started gaining more and more power and they really liked uh, you know the financial gain that they they received mm. and that created really corrupt system that even when Iran decided to privatize uh, some of its major industries through a, in 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 20 years ago 25 years ago a lot of those industries went to IRGC. There is a famous case of uh, opening of Imam Khomeini um, airport in Tehran. So Iran had uh, one airport, uh, international airport, Mehrabad, and then they created a new one, Imam Khomeini. And when they wanted to open it, um, um, IRGC uh, closed down, basically, the whole airport and didn't allow it to happen because they wanted uh, to be running that airport and eventually that happened so they mm. actually managed to get you know the contracts for that airport and other a lot of other things in the country mm. and right now especially with the oil sanctions when you look at the routes the people who are actually going around the sanctions doing the ship to ship smugglings um, um, and creating the system of um, getting the byproducts of oil and selling it it's all managed by IRGC and um, 
individuals or, you know, the companies that have to work directly with IRGC to do that. Mm. And as you know, um, oil is the main source of um, income for Iran as Mm. well. I wonder how much appetite there actually is in the West to change the regime in Iran. I mean, we've heard a lot of strong rhetoric, but there are huge lessons uh, that have been learned, I think, from similar actions in Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. I mean, could such a move actually be detrimental to Iranian civil society? I think what the Iranian civil society has already asked, um, clearly been asking, is that listen to the people on the ground, understand what they're asking for, and if you want to help, help in a way that is not direct attack on Iran. Um, it's it's or it might change. It might you know at some point the Iranian protesters would chant that there should be a direct attack, which I doubt at the moment. But it's just that you know a really tricky a stepping towards something that you don't, yeah, it's it's really difficult, I understand, for the politicians not to understand what should the next step be. Mm. Because taking all of these diplomatic steps means you're walking towards something which you have a history with it. It's really dire, you know, it's been, there are a lot of failures in it. But at the same time, um, you feel that kind of, a strong demand from the diaspora and I think that's what we see right now is that the politicians in the West are understanding what the diaspora and the protesters are asking for but at the same time as you mentioned that history um, kind of makes them think twice before taking any steps mm. but I think the demand for the regime change in Iran is something is at the heart of any um, civilized society that that you know value the human rights but they don't want to repeat the mistakes so that's why sometimes we see a lot of um, cautions in that regard as well as the Iranian government going away without any proper replacement is can destabilize that region dramatically yeah just just finally Negan briefly how has Iran's involvement with Russia changed the dial on all of this I think that was a really big mistake on part of Iran, in a sense that they didn't um, understand the consequences, um, that how it's going to affect the perspective of the Western world as well as Western politicians, and for example, you know the drones that they famously been using and sending to, uh, to to Russia to use it in Ukraine are a good example. But Iranian um, gov- the, the Islamic Republic didn't have the means and the power to be able to say no to Russia. Mm. So um, they, I think at, at some point they had no other, no other way. Negan, thank you very much indeed. That's Negan Shiraki there. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. The National Legion was created for foreign fighters dedicated to defending Ukraine. It draws competence from all over the world, but has faced heavy criticism and an investigation by the Kyiv Independent for alleged leadership misconduct. Well, Alex Kokcharov is a risk analyst on Russia, Ukraine, Belarus and Eurasia at S&P Global Market and joins me now. Alex, last March it was predicted that as many as 20,000 foreign volunteers would join the International Legion. Almost a year on, are those numbers accurate to the best of our knowledge? Um, it's it's hard to say, but uh, most probably we have seen quite significant numbers, definitely in multiple thousands, um, joining the Ukrainian armed forces. Majority of these people um, come from countries closer to Ukraine. Um, this includes particularly Georgia, uh, also Belarus. Um, but uh, Poland as well. There are people from really far out, from Canada, from United States, from Australia, from the United Kingdom. Um, but we know of many thousands of uh, 
uh, foreign volunteers who have joined the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian forces to defend Ukraine against the Russian invasion. What drives fighters who may have had no prior connection to Ukraine? Um, the motivation can be different. And uh, in case of, for instance, people from uh, Georgia or from Belarus, it is... Uh, the uh, the desire to stop Russian imperialism, which they see is damaging to their countries as well. Mm, mm. Um, in case of uh, people from further afield, uh, you know, motivations uh, can be varied, but uh, it's mostly people with uh, military backgrounds who think they can be useful uh, in a war which they believe is... Um, a just cause for Ukraine. Mm. I mean, some of them, by being in Ukraine, might be breaking the law inadvertently. I mean, the US has a neutrality act, uh, which prohibits US citizens from potentially embroiling the country in foreign wars. And I wonder if that's a problem, given that, given the fact that foreign fighters coming in goes against the concerted effort by the Biden administration and NATO allies to avoid direct involvement in Russia's war. How problematic is it to have US citizens, for instance, fighting independently for Ukraine? Uh, I'm not an international law expert and uh, uh, legal provisions in every country would be different. Um, but I can imagine that in some jurisdictions uh, it would be an issue. Um, but it, it's very much on individual case-by-case -case basis uh, and um, it's difficult to generalise. Um, but yes, I, I can see that in some countries where it is specifically banned by legislation, um, someone going to Ukraine um, to join the forces which are on the same side as the armed forces of, of Ukraine mm. uh, would still be legally problematic. And I wonder who's responsible for those volunteer soldiers during and after their dangerous combat service? Well, they are integrated into specific structures, and these structures, this includes the Georgian Legion and the uh, Belarusian Regiment um, and, and, and so on. They have their own command structures, uh, and they are integrated into the Ukrainian Armed Forces. So, ultimately, the responsibility um, uh, would be uh, covered by the Ukrainian MOD. Mm. Can you tell us more about the Kyiv independence investigation into the conduct of the Foreign Legion leaders? Um, I, I haven't looked at it in great detail, to be honest, but um, Kyiv independence overall is uh, a very solid uh, media based in Ukraine, and it's one of the English-language media which provides uh, great um, and very much detailed coverage of this war, uh, and they have um, uh, they have done quite a few investigations into multiple aspects of uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Everything from the Russian conduct in this war uh, to uh, issues such as corruption within Ukraine, which sadly is still an issue, uh, as we may uh, as we have witnessed in the past week with uh, arrests and resignations of some government officials um, to uh, yeah what's happening in the um, in the armed forces including the uh, the foreign um, uh, the foreign regiments uh, within the armed forces Alex thanks very much that's Alex Kopcherov there now still to come on the program on the matter of Russia and Ukraine there is no one in South Africa who supports war this is the position of South Africa. We support a search for peace. We'll unpack South Africa's controversial plans to conduct joint military exercises with Russian navies and the country's worsening energy crisis. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. 
Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. California has seen two mass shootings in the past few days, one outside a dance hall near Los Angeles and another yesterday at two locations in the coastal northern city of Half Moon Bay. It's a site that's sadly become all too common for communities across the United States, and it's often mayors who are on the front line of responding. The city of Orlando in Florida experienced one of the worst such atrocities when 49 people were killed at a gay nightclub in 2016. Monocle's Chris Chermack spoke with Orlando's longtime mayor, Buddy Dyer, at a meeting of the US Conference of Mayors in Washington just last week. Mayor Dyer began by discussing why such gatherings of city officials matter. We can always learn from our brother and sister mayors. We all have virtually the same issues. They might be a little bit bigger or smaller, depending on the size of the city, but we're all dealing with homelessness, affordable housing, crime and to be able to borrow some best practices from other mayors or or know that mayors are just in the same situation. I was just in a Democratic mayor's meeting and we were just talking about not so much where I am but in some of the other areas where there's only one big city in the state or you know two that the mayor is a very lonely position because there's nobody else that you can talk to or talk about the issues that you particularly have, but you can do it here at the U.S. Conference, and I've developed just fantastic relationships and friendships here. The Conference of Mayors has meetings in in other cities, but this winter meeting is always in Washington, D.C. Tell me a little about the relationship between the mayors and Washington. I mean, there's sort of a full court press here this, this week of administration officials, Joe Biden as well. What do you feel like the relationship is like between mayors and and D.C.? Well, it kind of depends on the particular administration, right? I think Joe Biden and Obama before him was very interactive with mayors and concerned about issues of local government. Trump administration, not so much. Obviously, there's some partisan issues there as well, but the White House is very good to us in terms of reaching out, figuring out how they can be helpful. So right now, I think it's a really good relationship. Orlando, of course, has been the victim of a mass shooting at a nightclub a few years ago. I wonder what that does to a city and a mayor. I mean, every town kind of assumes, I guess, every city assumes that something like that will not happen to them. How does it change your approach, your mindset? So, unfortunately, I was one of the early members in that club. I don't think the mass shootings were quite as prevalent as they are today, but back in 2016, you could probably name all of the mass shootings today. It's hard to do that. But I would say it was the most tragic day in the city of Orlando, but I couldn't be more proud of how our community responded with love and compassion, and they're still doing that today. So I think in terms of did good come out of it? Yes, it did because of the way our citizens responded. And what then is your message? What do you bring to other mayors here, perhaps mayors who haven't gone through that? How do they need to respond? Is it is it easy for them to respond if they haven't gone through it? There's a couple of messages, but number one is what you brought up. It can happen anywhere, anytime. So as a mayor, you need to be prepared for that to happen in your community. Uh, we do a lot of tabletop exercises and try to make sure we've thought of everything that might go into something, but you never know what type of event is going to occur. You know, we've had school shootings, we've had shootings at parades, we've had shootings like ours in nightclubs. So just being prepared to handle that. And then the mayor's largest job is to be the communicator in chief and to be able to give out a message that is clear and concise and let people know what's going on. Because a lot of times the response of the public is either fear or anger. And anger at whoever perpetrated it and fear when they don't know what's going on. So you want to have messages that reassure folks that you've got this in hand and then let them know exactly what's occurred. And if I could ask a little broader than that about public safety, it does seem to be also something that's a big topic here at the Conference of Mayors. Orlando, I think one of the things interesting, speaking of nightclubs, I understand you're proposing a moratorium for the moment on new nightclubs opening. I wanted to ask, I guess, a little more general about that. 
particularly after the pandemic as well, what are the challenges that you face in kind of reviving downtowns, reviving the downtown area of Orlando? There's the daytime economy and then there's the nighttime economy. So our nighttime economy is thriving on a Friday or Saturday night and Thursday and Sunday. We'll have 15, 20,000 people at the bars downtown till two in the morning. So there is certainly a public safety aspect of that. And we've had a couple of high profile incidents. So we're looking at every means that we can make to make downtown safer. The daytime economy is a different story because we have so many bars, we want to change the mix. But like most bigger cities that were reliant on the business community for the business community in the downtown to help the small businesses in downtown, the restaurants especially, thrive if so many of them that are, their employees are working remotely still, we don't have the type of traffic that we used to have in the downtown. So that's certainly an issue. You also have heard from other mayors here. Are you then considering rezoning ways to maybe bring residential uh, also into downtowns? Is that part of the challenge these days? Well, we've grown the residential in the downtown over the course of the last 10 years. We've probably quadrupled the number of residents that live in our downtown. So we continue to have that. And like everywhere else, we have the issue of affordable housing and housing in general. We have 1,500 people that move to Central Florida every single week. So you can see the stress that our housing market is under. And that was Orlando's Mayor Buddy Dyer speaking to Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack. Now, here's what else we're following today. Four more members of the far-right Oath Keepers have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy for taking part in the January the 6th assault on the US Capitol in 2021. The verdict marks the end of the second major sedition trial against the members of the extremist group, who were among hundreds who attempted to prevent Democrat Joe Biden from becoming president. Pakistan's energy minister says it has restored its national power grid nearly 24 hours after a breakdown. All 1,112 grid stations are now back online following the worst outage in months. Electricity should be fully restored across the country once power generators are back up. And the White House has nominated a special envoy for human rights in North Korea. The post has been empty since 2017, amid debate over how to reconcile rights issues with countering Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's 8.27 in Vienna, 7.27 here in London. And we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Tessa Siskowitz, uh, Austrian journalist and author. Tess, you cycled here in four-degree weather. I did not. I came by car. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have my little electric car and I came right. It's too early, too dark for me for the for the bicycle. OK, I was about to be hugely impressed by you. Though. Yeah, no, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I have to disappoint you. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, tanks, but no tanks. I mean... This is uh, the ongoing saga of the German government uh, and the fact that they're refusing to send a leopard to tanks to Ukraine or indeed to sanction other countries to do so. But it seems like there might be a breakthrough on that. Poland saying they want to send tanks. Germany, Annalise Burbach saying, well, maybe that's OK. But in fact, this story is all about the rift uh, internally. Yes. I mean, it's an ongoing story and I always have to uh, pick it up in the morning when I look at the papers because I'm uh, personally uh, really disappointed that Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor from the Social Democratic Party, is so slow in moving on this because it's quite obvious that this decision will come, that also Germany will send these tanks. So the problem is the German uh, Leopard tanks that are... A particularly good brand of battle tanks, one has to say as a pacifist like me, that now that we are changing into military expertise, <laughs> it's quite, it would be very, very helpful for the Ukrainian army to defend itself with these tanks. And um, Germany has to authorize other countries who buy their tanks to actually use them. And so Poland has been, for example, asking for uh, a while now to be able to use the leopards. And Germany now, and that's sort of the funny story of this morning also, which I saw in the Spiegel, um, one of the uh, editorialists there was saying, so the German government spokesman yesterday was saying 
that uh, Poland has not filled out the right form, which is so super German in its argumentation, of course. Um, so, but that will that apparently has been cleared yesterday already. And as you said, um, the Greens and the Social Democrats now have already an open disagreement on this question. The uh, foreign minister, Annalisa Baerbock, yesterday in France was saying that obviously uh, the tanks should be sensed and should be authorized by the German government. So I guess it's only a question of days, maybe even hours until the German government will agree at least other countries to use the leopards and also move themselves on the question. I mean, it's interesting that 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 Baerbock, who is part of the Greens, is yes. is urging for this to go forward. The Greens, uh, uh, kind of counterintuitively, have been pushing for this. Yeah, interestingly, you see that the Green parties now in Central Europe um, and especially in Germany are actually a little bit more um, flexible on this question. The Social Democrats in Germany and Olaf Scholz personally represent the kind of old thinking of the left wing to deal with former Soviet Union states and especially now during this war with Russia. There's always this old thinking of Entspannungspolitik to sort of try to have a dialogue with everyone and negotiate. And I think it is very difficult for Olaf Scholz to negotiate his own party and also the German public. I mean, this is not an easy decision to take, you know, the Germans historically, of course, not supposed to go to war again. Um, but it has come to the point where we can see that at least the smaller coalition partner, the Greens, are more for um, engaging proactively in this defense operation of the Ukrainian uh, state. But also the public seems to think now that that it would be impossible not to follow um, the will of, um, of Zelensky and his government to be able to defend themselves before the spring operation that Russia will launch in, in the east of the country. So it's not if, it's when, isn't it? Really? Yes. Um, now, the British government continues to reel from corruption scandal to corruption scandal, but let's leave the domestic woes aside for the moment uh, and talk about this new story. The UK government helped sanction a Putin ally to sue a British journalist. We're talking here about the head of the Wagner organisation and Elliot Higgins uh, from Bellingcat. Tell us more. And It's a fascinating story and it brings together a few of our favourite players in this uh, war uh, scene. So, Yevgeny Prigozhin, as you said, uh, is, the, is the head of the Wagner Group, which has become sort of a really murderous mercenary army now in the Ukraine, which is sort of operating with the uh, uh, with in, in step with the Russian army, but also has its own will. He, before he became or before he became sort of warlord in the Ukraine, in this ongoing war, he uh, had a few other sort of very murky and criminal uh, operations running. One of these things were the troll fabrics in St. Petersburg, who uh, uh, interfered in Western elections and all these kind of things. So for that, he was investigated already at that time uh, by Elliot Higgins. Elliot Higgins, again, is the founder of Bellingcat, which is an open source investigation um, organization, uh, a platform where um, these investigations are also then um published and used by all sorts of media as a basis of their reporting. So Higgins uh, was sued by Prigozhin. Now, Prigozhin at the time was already under sanctions since 2018 in the US and since 2020 in the UK and the EU. So uh, the big question that open democracy in this very, very interesting piece uh, revealed is how it was possible that Prigozhin, who was under sanctions and cannot fly to the UK, has used a very high-level British law firm to fly business class to St. Petersburg to help him uh, in his labor case against Elliot Higgins. So now Elliot Higgins... I uh, know it's a very complicated story. No, and we should just point out that the government had to grant a license for that lawyer to fly to St. Petersburg. Exactly. And so this is a very little known government department called OSFI. 
It's the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. So they are the office that should oversee the financial sanctions that they are sort of putting on people and implement them. And they are actually not uh, supposed to help those who are under sanctions to do that. So this all happened while um, Rishi Sunak was head of the Treasury. So now the question, of course, uh, the, the government has sort of um, not uh, reacted to this yet. And all this has to be cleared up. But there's some really murky stuff going on. And Elliot Higgins um, uh who is a really very, very, very diligent researcher, has accused the government's OSFI department of becoming embroiled in a scheme to undermine the very sanctions they were responsible for governing. Absolutely, because, I mean, Prigozhin, for instance, paid his his UK lawyer through a wire transfer. That would be not allowed, wouldn't it? I mean, you can't... uh, So many uh, instances in in this very interesting piece about how the British government actually flouted its own laws. Absolutely. Uh, let's go on to have a look at the world of tech, uh, um, particularly chat GPT. Have you tried it yet? Yes, I did. I did a bigger story. That's why I came across it. I'm very excited about this. Um, I did a bigger story on artificial intelligence recently. So I tried to make a chat GPT, which is this new tool that came out in November by OpenAI. It's a, that's an AI company that was founded by Sam Altman and also with an investor named Elon Musk. Uh, so they came out with ChatGPT, where you can, if you put in the right words, you can uh, write poems like Shakespeare. So that's quite interesting for all average people like mm. us who cannot write these <laughs> poems usually. But what you can do is basically write everything. So for the first time, because of ChatGPT, um, some universities in England have uh, uh, said that the essay question in their exams should not be posed at all because students can now write essays by ChatGPT, and it's very difficult to detect um, if it's the computer writing or human writing. But in this case now, the story today was that uh, Microsoft is probably putting in up to 10 billion euros or 12, hold on so that we don't get this on, 10 billion dollars, so that would be more than in euros and 8 billion pounds into ChatGPT to invest in it because they apparently think that this is really a game changer in in the in the history of human uh, writing because it now can be done to largest extent by a machine. Mm. And so I, when I wrote my story on ChatGPT, now I put in: Will robo reporters uh, replace? Uh, human uh, journalists and ChatGPT came back with an essay, an article properly written much faster than I could ever do it and said at the end but be aware that ChatGPT is only here to assist human writers it is just an assisting tool it is not supposed to replace you and I said thank you very much computer well done <laughs> you know it's such fun though I've, I've done a number of experiments it's, I think the best one has been uh, do British Rail announcements in the style of the Old Testament <laughs> yeah. that was a good one also present uh, be a DJ presenting uh, a 60s radio show in the style of John Dunn. Yes. <laughs> it can do it. Uh, absolutely. And it's I mean, hilarious, the results. It can, of course, also make mistakes because it depends yeah. on what you put in. Tess, thanks very much indeed. That was Tessa Siskovitz here. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. South Africa has declared itself neutral in Russia's war with Ukraine, but this week is hosting the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and has also agreed to join in a joint military exercise with Russia and Chinese warships taking place in South African waters. All of this is set against rumbling discontent from the locals who face daily power outages and economic hardship. Well, I'm joined now by Nwabisa Makunga, who's a journalist and the editor of the Sowetan, a national daily publication in Johannesburg. Nwabisa, many thanks for coming on. What was Lavrov doing in South Africa? Well, I think it's really part of 
the um, you know the, the the kind of PR exercise that Russia has been doing in the whole of Africa, um, and you know the visit. Uh, I mean, he's he's we've seen him going to a number of of uh, African states, and obviously you know uh, now coming to South Africa. Uh, you know, the official version, of course, is, you know, we're, we're trying to strengthen, uh, you know, business ties, uh, trade ties with Russia. Um, but we also understand, of course, that it is really about uh, and consolidating Russia's power, including soft power, as far as South Africa is concerned, um, and particularly in the light of, obviously, the, the war in Ukraine. So, so you know, our ministers tell us, you know, that, you know, we, this is really about, you know, uh, trade, uh, really trying to st- strengthen our trade partnerships. Um, but I mean, it's much more than poli- uh, for, uh, much more uh, politics, really, than than simply business. Mm. And I mean, what is his opposite number? Naledi Pandor said about this. She says, I mean, she yesterday she was really kind of reiterating that uh, South Africa remains neutral um, in the, you know, as far as the war. South Africa wants, obviously, you know, an end to uh, the, uh, this war. Um, they call it a conflict. Then end to this conflict and peaceful end to this conflict. Um, but I mean, as you said, I think that it has drawn a lot of criticism. And, and since last year, um, that, you know, us, South Africa remaining neutral was, is hugely problematic, in particular with our own human rights uh, record that we've held held, you know, dating back to apartheid times. Well, and apartheid times is interesting because I wonder how much of this is a backlash against former colonial powers and NATO, a sort of anti-US hegemony position. Moscow supported uh, the ANC when it was a liberation movement opposing white minority rule. Is this that these old ties still Absolutely, 100%. That is really what is going on here. I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, South Africa has always held a position in many other African countries, but has always held a position which really wanted to disrupt what it sees as, a, as you call it, a, a hegemony as far as, you know, uh, Western powers. And of course, uh, you know, Russia being, quote unquote, a friend, a historic friend, uh, you know, in, in our struggle against apartheid. And obviously, you know, even in democracy, uh, I think there is some sort of uh, feeling, you know, among the South African government and in particular, you know, the ANC, that, you know, we ought to uh, uh, really side with Russia in whatever it is that we do. Of course, it's it's a bit awkward when it comes to the war, which is why we are maintaining this so-called neutral position. Mm. How important is South Africa to Russia? I mean, does its position as chair of BRICS, for instance, uh, at the moment have a bearing? Um, it is important, I think, just as far as, uh, you know, it, its p- potential influence in the rest of Africa. Um, I mean, if we're being blunt, I mean, Russia doesn't really need us, uh, you know, just as far as, uh, you know, any other relations except for politics. So it is it is important as an intern- as, a, as a player in the, uh, an influential player in the continent. And of course, for... for- Russia to be seen, uh, you know, to have friends that are pro, uh, you know, human rights. I think it's, it's also one can call it a sanita- sanitization uh, exercise on Russia's part. Mm. And apart from old loyalties, what does Pretoria have to gain? Um, I think it's really about, uh, you know, whatever it is that we're wanting. I mean, we've had conversations, uh, you know, dating back to former President Jacob Zuma's time. We've had conversations about the nuclear deal. We've had conversations, you know, about, you know, how is it that we can potentially really do more business with Russia? So I think for us, uh, let me not say for us, but for the South African government, it's really about, uh, you know, what opportunities may lie, um, you know, for us. I mean, even simple things like whenever any of our, uh, say, our former president or even our deputy president, whenever they're ill, they go to Russia, you know, to seek medical mm-hmm. help. So for us, uh, you know, Russia has kind of been the, you know, the superpower, um, yes, that, you know, aligns with us politically, but also may offer certain opportunities uh, in, in terms of trade. Though Janet Yellen, the US uh, Treasury Secretary, arrives in South Africa tomorrow. Uh, the US has pledged billions to the continent recently. What kind of welcome will she get? It's going to be awkward. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the Secretary of State in, in, in the U.S. has already said that it, you know, it is concerned, obviously, by in particular the, the, the upcoming uh, military drill um, that South Africa is going to have, you know, in a few weeks with, with Russia and China. Um, she's, uh, you know, they're likely to get a welcome that is, uh, you know, warm as far as, you know, PR. But I do think there may be difficult conversations, uh, really, particularly in the part of the U.S., to call us out as far as this uh, supposed neutral position that we've had so far. Mm. And let's talk about that military drill. It's uh, with Russia and China on the East Coast, so it's sort of around Durban and Richards Bay in February. How South Africa defended that? 
they're basically saying, but we've done it with other countries as well. So they're saying, I mean, you know, it has happened in previous times with uh, U US and this is really an exercise. It's a drill, um, you know, and it's a drill that we're doing with friends. But of course, um, I mean, that is the official line and, and it hasn't really landed with the general South African population. Of course, there are people, many people in South Africa who are pro-Russia. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, you know, those ties run deep, in particular, even in communities. So, so um, uh, you know, there are a few people who have called it out uh, for what it is to say not only is it insensitive, but it's really sending out the wrong message. But uh, but I think our government has been able to 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 defend it and simply just saying, oh no, it's just uh, you know a military drill with friends. Mm. And I guess ordinary South Africans have much more pressing concerns, chiefly the continuous power cuts and the rolling back blackouts. How how bad is it? It's terrible. I mean, earlier I couldn't really connect because our towers were down. Um, it, it, it's really terrible. I mean, we have uh, blackouts for um, up to, you know, eight, ten hours a day sometimes. Um, and the South African government continues to call it load shedding, it's had a, uh, you know, it has obliterated so many businesses. I mean, we had a, uh, a cover of the Sowetan last week where we really showed the impact and really listed a number of small boys businesses in particular who were affected by this. People are losing jobs and it's really going to get worse. The government is basically saying to us, give us another two years to try and figure this thing out. Um, and, and really that message itself is not, is not landing with South Africans who are really under the, uh, the crunch as far as, uh, you know, economic uh, trade is concerned. So why is this happening? Uh, a lot of reasons, but if you you know put it down to one, um, we did not build uh, capacity years ago, 20 years or so ago. We did not build uh, you know enough capacity, uh, you know as far as our power stations. But also it is happening because uh, throughout sort of in the last 10, 15 years, there's really been corruption at our uh, power utility, utility uh, ESCOM, um, and it's really been hollowed out. Um, and 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 to some degree, there is you know there are instances of sabotage as far as what happens at our power stations. But it's really those three things. It's that we did not build capacity when we were told to do so. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, it's been that there's been a decade or so of major, major corruption, which does still happen. And then there are incidents of sabotage by uh, perhaps, you know, disgruntled uh, employees of the power utility who are really wanting to show the government up. And finally, what does this mean for Ramaphosa's leadership? Yeah, um, he's really in trouble. I mean, look, the NC is a complex organization. So, uh, you know, one can't say because of, uh, you know, the power cuts, he will lose his power within the ANC. However, um, there is, uh, you know, a, a groundswell of discontent in communities uh, against the ANC, not just him, but against the ANC as a political party. Um, and it really does put uh, the ANC in a much more vulnerable position as far as going to the 2024 elections. Um, so, yes, the president, uh, President Ramaphosa, may hold on to power, particularly in his party um, and going to the elections as far as government. But it's really uh, at this moment, they're much more in a vulnerable position as far as, you know, the outcome of that election. Noabisa, thank you very much indeed. That was Nabisa Mnokunga, who's editor of the Sowetan in Johannesburg. It's time to talk fashion now with Dana Thomas, who's the Paris-based author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. Good morning to you, Dana. Good morning. It's Couture Week in Paris. Uh, the Chaparelli Show, I have looked at the article you sent me from W Magazine. I found it profoundly disturbing. The pictures of those outfits. Yes. Well, Daniel Roseberry, who is a Texan, um, who, is take, who took over the house a few years ago, before COVID, is really tapping into the house and its love of surrealism. And we all went yesterday to see the closing day of the Chaparelli uh, exhibit at the uh, Art Deco, which was all a, a whole show about surrealism. So you could really see, in, in, and they showed some of his clothes next to some of Elsa Schiaparelli's show clothes designed in the 1930s and 40s, and you could see the dialogue. But a lot of people were very put out today about, or yesterday, and still going on this morning on social media, about these dresses that have lions and tiger heads and leopard heads on them that look very real. They're made out of foam and sustainable materials. And his theme was Dante's uh, Inferno, and there is a whole section about animals. And it was a commentary in his mind, I spoke to him about it afterwards, about how we need to honor these beautiful, majestic creatures, treat them as they are, as beauty, and put them you know, in the forefront and celebrate them. But people got very upset that it was 
promoting big game hunting. Mm. And of course, another reason that people were upset was that they were members of the audience wearing clothes that were about to be showcased on the on the runway. Yes, uh, they were. Uh, yeah, Kylie Jenner, for instance. Exactly. Where, uh, yeah, and t- that, that, tell that us doesn't more. happen before. So they often come out in clothes from the collection, but yeah. not things that were. It was almost like a preview to coming attractions. And so when Kylie walked out. With the left, with the giant lion's head on her, that was she was wearing it almost like a like a brooch. It was like on the perched on her on the front like a brooch, but it was a life size head of a male lion. Well, everyone sort of gasped, and <laughs> and and I got it. I understood it. First, I was as shocked as everyone, and then I thought, right, no, he's talking about how animals are beauty, and we need to celebrate them, and as opposed to kill them, and that this was clearly not going to be a real lion's head because who would do that? But a lot of people think that it was. Uh, and then there's this extraordinary outfit in red latex yes. worn by a member of the audience. Tell us about that. That was that was Doja Cat, though. Who could tell? She looked like she was out of one of the, the Marvel sci-fi movies. Like she was the, the red sparkly version of some, of, a, of the of a somebody like from Avatar. Do you see what I mean? Or from X-Men or something. And, and we didn't know who she was. I had to actually ask backstage who it was and, um, not really sure about that, but, (laughs) but it was, it was definitely caught our attention. And that's what haute couture and fashion do try to do with the fashion shows. I wonder though, you know, with, with members of the audience or celebrities in particular, wearing part of the current collection that's about to be showcased, at what point the runway just becomes not, no longer necessary? Why don't you just dress up the celebrities and let them mingle around at a party? Well, there is that. And that's basically what we've been doing for years in the luxury fashion business with the red carpet. I mean, you know, you see clothes that are made for for special events like the Oscars, the Golden Globes, the Venice Film Festival, the Cannes Film Festival, and they're photographed on the celebrities, and we never have seen them on a runway. But also, you know, the runway now is about Instagram. When I first started covering fashion 30 years ago here in Paris and went to the fashion shows, you would have people there taking, I would take notes, and there would be people with notebooks sketching what they saw coming down the runway because they'd want to use it in a layout or write about it. And so they would remember to remember it. They'd sketch it. This was before we had pocket telephones with pocket cameras and in with instant digital cameras. And the photographers, of course, shot with film. But now everyone just sits there and raises their film, takes pictures and they post while the show is going on. And it's all just become one gigantic Instagram moment. It's not even about a commentary on anything. It just whizzes by and you go on to the next. Mm. Uh, Fans of Succession (laughs) will have been watching the Dior show, which I know you went to. Yes. uh, Because, of course, there's been this kind of, uh, well, a sort of family discussion, I suppose, about who takes what job. But Delphine Arnaud is now in charge at Dior. She is. She's the daughter of Bernard Arnaud, who is... Uh, depending on what time of day it is, the richest man in the world right now. And uh, he is the owner of LVMH, the big luxury conglomerate that has more than 75 brands now, I think, including Dior. And um, and she has taken over. She's really worked her way up the chain of at, at LVMH, the company where she has worked for all, all different houses in all different capacities. So she's been groomed for this job. And it is her father's pet company company his pet house because it's the first one he bought so it's saying a lot and and he's not young anymore he's in his 70s and uh and so it seems like he's tapping her to become that you know to replace him eventually as opposed to his son uh Antoine who come who stays more over in communications he's better at sort of outreach with other people and communicating as as opposed to sitting in the in the in the office running the company, and um, so there's a lot of talk because it's the first time a woman's run that house, and it's about time, and uh, and it's funny because you know he started the company by poo-pooing all these fem- these family dynasties and taking over these houses from families, and now he's installing his family in charge and created another uh, yet again a family dynasty in the luxury industry. And uh, does the show any good? The show was. Um, fine. You know, the woman, the, the designer, Mary Gazia, she, she kind of has a very basic look that she keeps tweaking with. And, 
And she says she's about female empowerment, but she keeps sending out these day suits in wool with skirts down to your ankles. They look like suffragette outfits that are very tailored and beautiful, but nevertheless heavy and confining. And I don't see how that's terribly empowering to women. And she puts them in big high heels too, which isn't terribly empowering. And also I didn't quite get that this is supposed to be spring summer and all her evening gowns, well not all of them, but the last four or five were made out of velvet. And I thought, well, hasn't anyone told her about climate change yet? Dana, thank you very much indeed. And of course, you do do a a podcast that melds the two, climate change and fashion, uh, your green dream. Uh, The green dream, that's it. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Finally on today's show, the Oslo Design Fair is the largest trade fair for the design and interior industries in Norway, and it kicks off this week. It's the country's most important and attractive arena for design, architecture and craft. Well, joining me now from Oslo to tell us more is Catherine Jansen, who's the director of Oslo Design Fair and the Oslo Contract and Furniture Fair. Uh, Catherine, welcome. Can you uh, start out by telling us a little bit about this event? Definitely. Thank you so much for being here. Um, also, the Sign Fair is actually the biggest business-to-business trade fair here in Norway within design, interior, architecture, and also handcraft. Our vision is, of course, to be the most important and um, inspiring meeting place for the entire design and interior industry here in Norway. So in that case, we gather all people from the industry for a three-day event um, where everybody takes place at the, at the same place, and that will make it very effective for all parts, of course. And we also go twice a year. We go this in January, and we also go uh, every August, in the end of August. So, um, But I must say, this is a quite smaller trade fair compared to Paris, Milan, London, uh, we're in the Nordics. Uh, Norway's a, a bit smaller country. <laughs> tell us, tell us, what are you seeing as the coming trends? Well, um, what we could see right now, uh, we're actually going a bit back to nature. We do see organic shapes in the architecture, natural materials such as pine. Uh, and when it comes to colors too, um, it's colors more that incorporates nature and earth. And just, I'm just going to stop you there, Catherine. Are you actually drawing at the moment? Because I can hear you scribbling away. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm still planning, you know. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful that you're, that you're on the job as we speak. Um, what, are, what are some of the highlights of the fair? Your, your personal favourites? Oh, uh, I've been thinking about that. We're not really finished yet, you know. We're doing the last finished part right now. But I must point out uh, the most spectacular exhibition we have set up for this event. It is designed by a very well-known Norwegian interior design company called Scenario Interior Architects. They have made a quite complex exhibition this time, uh, which is over 1,000 square meters. And the frame of the exhibition is most spectacular because it's made by pine tree in all kinds of shapes, heights, and curves. And... um, It contains more than six rooms in different architectural forms, uh, bathroom bathroom and bedrooms with curved walls, uh, where floor is made of water. Um, There's a therapy room or a light room, if you will, like um, a kitchen, which is made into a laboratory. And it's been used um, different materials, lightning and colors, in order to we're trying to stimulate our senses, arouse our emotions and make us notice, um, what do you say, small details in the rooms that actually affects us as people. Mm, that so, sounds wonderful. It also sounds pretty expensive. What's the economic yeah. situation like in the design industry right now? Well, um, uh, oof, the, the industry is is facing a quite hard time right now. Um, the, there is high inflation, 
and low business cycles, as well as quite high electricity prices, especially here in Norway. And it doesn't get any better with a war going on in Europe. Um, and this affects the whole industry, especially in terms of products coming in, with, uh, in terms of shipping and transport. But however, it is now, and at, at this time, uh, a trade fair is more important than ever in order to keep the business going. And uh, the whole team, also the creatives, have worked so hard to make it as nice and big and inspiring as possible. So we're very exciting. We're opening tomorrow morning at 9.30. And <laughs> how long do you run for? Three days. Excellent. That's the yeah. Oslo Design Fair. And that was uh, the director of that, Catherine Johnson. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Emma Searle and Laura Kramer. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parmintuan. Our studio manager today was Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. Uh, and uh, later on this morning, you can hear both Monocle Reads and Meet the Writers with Sarah May. The briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.